Chapter 19b of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter 19b Witnesses an attack on the rebel ram Merrimack, the capture of Norfolk, Lincoln's account of the affair, letter to McClellan. It was a most interesting study to see these men relieved for the moment from the surroundings of their onerous official duties. The President, of course, was the centre of the group—kind, genial, thoughtful, tender-hearted, magnanimous Abraham Lincoln. It was difficult to know him without knowing him intimately, for he was as guileless and single-hearted as a child, and no man ever knew him intimately who did not recognize and admire his great abilities, both natural and acquired, his large-heartedness and sincerity of purpose. He would sit for hours during the trip, repeating passages of Shakespeare's plays, page after page of Browning, and whole cantos of Byron. His inexhaustible stock of anecdotes gave to superficial minds the impression that he was not a thoughtful and reflecting man, whereas the fact was directly the reverse. These anecdotes formed no more a part of Mr. Lincoln's mind than a smile forms a part of the face. They came unbidden, and like a forced smile were often employed to conceal a depth of anxiety in his own heart, and to dissipate the care that weighed upon the minds of his associates. Both Mr. Chase and Mr. Stanton were under great depression of spirits when we started and Mr. Chase remarked with a good deal of seriousness that he had forgotten to write a very important letter before leaving. It was too late to remedy the omission, and Mr. Lincoln at once drove the thought of it from his mind by telling him that a man was sometimes lucky in forgetting to write a letter, for he seldom knew what it contained until it appeared again some day to confront him with an indiscreet word or expression and then he told a humorous story of a sad catastrophe that happened in a family, which was ascribed to something that came in a letter, a catastrophe so far beyond the region of possibility that it set us all laughing, and Mr. Chase lost his anxious look. That reminded Mr. Stanton of the dilemma he had been placed in, just before leaving, by the receipt of a telegram from General Mitchell, who was in northern Alabama. The telegram was indistinct, and could not be clearly understood. There was no time for further explanation, and yet an immediate answer was required. So the secretary took the chances and answered back, All right, go ahead. Now, Mr. President, said he, if I have made a mistake, I must countermand my instructions. I suppose you meant, said Mr. Lincoln, that it was all right if it was good for him, and all wrong if it was not. That reminds me, said he, of a story about a horse that was sold at the crossroads near where I once lived. The horse was supposed to be fast, and quite a number of people were present at the time appointed for the sale. A small boy was employed to ride the horse backward and forward to exhibit his points. One of the would-be buyers followed the boy down the road and asked him confidentially if the horse had a splint. Well, mister, said the boy, if it's good for him, he's got it but if it isn't good for him, he hasn't." "'And that's the position,' said the President. "'You seem to have left General Mitchell in. Well, Stanton, I guess he'll come out right. But at any rate, you can't help him now.'" Mr. Lincoln always had a pleasant word to say the last thing at night and the first thing in the morning. He was always the first one to awake, although not the first to rise. 
The daytime was spent principally upon the quarter-deck, and the President entertained us with numerous anecdotes and incidents of his life, of the most interesting character. Few were aware of the physical strength possessed by Mr. Lincoln. In muscular power he was one in a thousand. One morning, while we were sitting on deck, he saw an axe in a socket on the bulwarks, and taking it up, he held it at arm's length, at the extremity of the helve, with his thumb and forefinger, continuing to hold it there for a number of minutes. The most powerful sailors on board tried in vain to imitate him. Mr. Lincoln said he could do this when he was eighteen years of age, and had never seen a day since that time when he could not. Footnote. Lincoln never lost his interest in exhibitions of physical strength, and involuntarily he always compared its possessor with himself. On one occasion, it was in 1859, he was asked to make an address at the State Fair of Wisconsin, which was held at Milwaukee. Among the attractions was a strong man who went through the usual performances of tossing iron balls and letting them roll back down his arms, lifting heavy weights, etc. Apparently Lincoln had never seen such a combination of strength and agility before. He was greatly interested. Every now and then he gave vent to the ejaculation, "'By George! By George!' After the speech was over, Governor Hoyt introduced him to the athlete, and as Lincoln stood looking down at him from his great height, evidently pondering that one so small could be so strong, he suddenly gave utterance to one of his quaint speeches. "'Why?' he said. I could lick salt off the top of your hat." End footnote. It was late in the evening, continues General Viel, when we arrived at Fortress Monroe. Answering the hail of the guard-boats we made a landing, and the Secretary of War immediately dispatched a messenger for General Wool, the commander of the fort, on whose arrival it was decided to consult at once with Admiral Goldsboro, through the commander of the fleet, whose flagship, the Minnesota, a superb model of naval architecture, lay a short distance off the shore. The result of this conference was a plan to get up an engagement the next day between the Merrimack and the Monitor, so that during the fight the Vanderbilt, which had been immensely strengthened for the purpose, might put on all steam and run her down. Accordingly, the next morning the President and party went over to the rip-raps to see the naval combat. The Merrimack moved out of the mouth of the Elizabeth River, quietly and steadily, just as she had come out only a few weeks before, when she had sunk the Congress and the Cumberland. She wore an air of defiance and determination even at that distance. The Monitor moved up and waited for her. All the other vessels got out of the way to give the Vanderbilt and the Minnesota room to bear down upon the rebel terror as soon as she should clear the coastline. It was a calm Sabbath morning and the air was still and tranquil. Suddenly the stillness was broken by the cannon from the vessels and the great guns from the rip-raps that filled the air with sulphurous smoke and a terrific noise that reverberated from the fortress and the opposite shore like thunder. The firing was maintained for several hours, but all to no purpose. The Merrimack moved sullenly back to her position. It was determined that night that on the following day vigorous offensive operations should be undertaken. The whole available naval force was to bombard Sewell's Point, and under cover of the bombardment the available troops from Fortress Monroe were to be landed at that point and move on Norfolk. Accordingly, the next morning a tremendous cannonading of Sewall's Point took place. The wooden sheds at that place were set on fire and the battery was silenced. 
the merrimac coated with mail and lying low in the water looked on but took no part night came on and the cannonading ceased it was so evident that the merrimac intended to act only on the defensive and that as long as she remained where she was no troops could be landed in that vicinity that they were ordered to disembark that night the president with the secretary of war and the secretary of the treasury went over on the miami to the virginia shore and by the light of the moon landed on the beach and walked up and down a considerable distance to assure himself that there could be no mistake in the matter how little the confederacy dreamed what a visitor it had that night to the sacred soil the following morning an advance was made upon norfolk by the route proposed by general viel the attempt was successful and before night our forces were in control of the captured city some time after midnight as general viel records with a shock that shook the city and with an ominous sound that could not be mistaken the magazine of the merrimac was exploded the vessel having been cut off from supplies and deserted by the crew and thus this most formidable engine of destruction that had so long been a terror not only to hampton roads but to the atlantic coast went to her doom a tragic and glorious finale to the trip of the miami secretary chase had accompanied the expedition against norfolk returning to fortress monroe with general wool immediately after the surrender of the city the scene which ensued on the announcement of the good tidings they brought back to the anxious parties awaiting news of them was thus described by the president himself chase and stanton had accompanied me to fortress monroe while we were there an expedition was fitted out for an attack on norfolk chase and general wool disappeared about the time we began to look for tidings of the result and after vainly waiting their return till late in the evening stanton and i concluded to retire my room was on the second floor of the commandant's house and stanton's was below the night was very warm the moon shining brightly and too restless to sleep i sat for some time by the table reading suddenly hearing footsteps i looked out of the window and saw two persons approaching whom i knew by their relative size to be the missing men they came into the passage and i heard them rap at stanton's door and tell him to get up and come upstairs a moment afterward they entered my room no time for ceremony mr president said general wool norfolk is ours stanton here burst in just out of bed clad in a long nightgown which nearly swept the floor and his ear catching as he crossed the threshold wool's last words perfectly overjoyed he rushed at the general whom he hugged most affectionately fairly lifting him from the floor in his delight the scene altogether must have been a comical one though at the time we were all too greatly excited to take much note of mere appearances lincoln's general grasp of military strategy and his keen understanding of the specific problems confronting the army of the potomac in the critical autumn of eighteen sixty two are well indicated in the following communication to general mcclellan executive mansion washington october thirteenth eighteen sixty two my dear sir you remember my speaking to you of what i called your overcautiousness are you not overcautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing should you not claim to be at least his equal in prowess and act upon the claim as i understand you telegraphed general halleck that you cannot subsist your army at winchester unless the railroad from harper's ferry to that point be put in working order 
But the enemy does now subsist his army at Winchester, at a distance nearly twice as great from railroad transportation as you would have to do, without the railroad last named. He now wagons from Culpeper Courthouse, which is just about twice as far as you would have to do from Harper's Ferry. He is certainly not more than half as well provided with wagons as you are. I certainly should be pleased for you to have the advantage of the railroad from Harper's Ferry to Winchester, but it wastes all the remainder of the autumn to give it to you, and in fact ignores the question of time, which cannot and must not be ignored. Again, one of the standard maxims of war, as you know, is to operate upon the enemy's communications as much as possible without exposing your own. You seem to act as if this applies against you, but cannot apply in your favor. Change positions with the enemy, and think you not he would break your communication with Richmond within the next twenty-four hours? You dread his going into Pennsylvania. But if he does so in full force, he gives up his communications to you absolutely, and you have nothing to do but to follow and ruin him. If he does so with less than full force, fall upon and beat what is left behind all the easier. Exclusive of the water-line, you are now nearer Richmond than the enemy is, by the route that you can, and he must, take. Why can you not reach there before him, unless you admit that he is more than your equal on the march? His route is the arc of a circle, while yours is the cord. The roads are as good on yours as on his. You know I desired, but did not order, you to cross the Potomac below instead of above the Shenandoah and Blue Ridge. My idea was that this would at once menace the enemy's communications, which I would seize if he would permit. If he should move northward, I would follow him closely, holding his communications. If he should prevent our seizing his communications, and move toward Richmond, I would press closely to him, fight him if a favorable opportunity should present, and at least try to beat him to Richmond on the inside track. I say try, for if we never try, we shall never succeed. If he make a stand at Winchester, moving neither north nor south, I would fight him there, on the idea that if we cannot beat him when he bears the wastage of coming to us, we never can when we bear the wastage of going to him. This proposition is a simple truth, and is too important to be lost sight of for a moment. In coming to us, he tenders us an advantage which we should not waive. We should not so operate as to merely drive him away, as we must beat him somewhere, or fail finally. We can do it, if at all, easier near to us than far away. If we cannot beat the enemy where he now is, we never can, he again being within the entrenchments of Richmond. Recurring to the idea of going to Richmond on the inside track, the facility of supplying from the side away from the enemy is remarkable, as it were, by the different spokes of a wheel, extending from the hub toward the rim, and this whether you move directly by the cord, or on the inside arc, hugging the blue ridge more closely. The cord line, as you see, carries you by Aldi, Haymarket, and Fredericksburg, and you see how turnpikes, railroads, and finally the Potomac by Aquia Creek meet you at all points from Washington. The same, only the lines lengthened a little, if you press closer to the Blue Ridge part of the way. The gaps through the Blue Ridge I understand to be about the following distances from Harper's Ferry to wit, 
Vestal's five miles, Gregory's thirteen, Snickers eighteen, Ashby's twenty-eight, Manassas thirty-eight, Chester forty-five, and Thornton's fifty-three. I should think it preferable to take the route nearest the enemy, disabling him to make an important move without your knowledge, and compelling him to keep his forces together for dread of you. The gaps would enable you to attack if you should wish. For a great part of the way you would be practically between the enemy and both Washington and Richmond, enabling us to spare you the greatest number of troops from here. When, at length, running to Richmond ahead of him enables him to move this way, if he does so, turn and attack him in the rear. But I think he should be engaged long before such point is reached. It is all easy if our troops march as well as the enemy, and it is unmanly to say they cannot do it. This letter is in no sense an order. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Major General McClellan. End of chapter 19b. Recording by Bill Borst.